Good morning, watchers. Welcome to season two of the stories we tell. This season is a little different than last because I'm talking about masculinity. Specifically, what movies and TV shows tell boys and men. Now, this is a subject that isn't often studied. My guess as to why is because white patriarchal supremacy uses movies and TV shows to perpetuate the dominant narrative that men and masculinity is a default. Thus, it needs no examination. But that's not true. The biggest story we're fed is that men are static, and we're not. There are as many shades of men and masculinity as there are of any other identity. And I want to talk about those stories that limit and to some extent damage us, all of us, men included. So during my formative years in the early 80s, there was one name that dominated kids' content. And no, it wasn't Disney. It was actually Hanna-Barbera and to some extent Mattel. So Scooby-Doo, Yogi Bear, The Smurfs, The Jetsons, The Flintstones, these were all shows about community, right? Those Saturday morning cartoons, those, those afternoon cartoons, they, they were about, you know, family, really. They showcased characters that were all, you know, each specific and unique, who were all celebrated for their differences within their families. The Smurfs didn't cast out Vanity or Smurfette or Hefty or the strong guy. They just, you know, they were all just facets of their family. G.I. Joe, Transformers, Barbie and the Rockers. These were all about cooperation. These shows were teaching kids about acceptance of difference without ever having to have one of those, quote, a very special episodes about it. The value of community, teamwork, and a shared value system. But zooming out into the larger context of the 1980s, that quote-unquote togetherness was a code for hegemony, right? That 80s was about modernization, standardization, and purification of whiteness. From the rich white people on TV like Dallas and, and Dynasty to TV to tables filled with cocaine. <laughs> the, the 80s was about two things, pure whiteness. The 60s and 70s were filled with civil unrest from the women's movement, civil rights movements, and gay liberation. But once Reagan was elected, the war on non-normativity, aka the Great White Way, began. The way that was done was through very thoughtful storytelling that erased the real reference for things and replaced them with a TV version. This is what the 80s was known for, rewriting the history of things so we forget the real history, or to use a very popular term, the 70s, like the late 70s and 80s, was a time of great white revisionist history. Now last episode, right, in, in, in episode 5 of the last season, The Trouble with Santa Carla, I broke down postmodernism in the work of Roland Barthes and Jean Baudrillard. I explained the tenets of postmodernism and the result of storytelling when we lose the original reference of something. So, to summarize it, if you haven't heard that episode, once we entered postmodernism, we began capable of telling stories that changed the very nature of history. And this was a very dangerous thing when mixed with Reagan's political motivation to reignite the supremacy of whiteness. What we saw in the 80s was a celebration of whiteness, straightness, cisness, and maleness in every image we saw for over a decade. At the same time, the lived experience of those in the world who were not white, straight, cis, male, or rich was pretty bleak. Trickle-down economics created a massive income gap between the rich and the poor. Pollution, poverty, AIDS, sexism, racism, and xenophobia was rampant. If you only watch cartoons, the world would look happy, cohesive, safe. 
But if as a child, you existed outside the realm of those identities, you know, your lived experience, you, 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 you had to negotiate this inconsistency as part of your ego formation. Meaning, this incongruity between the story you were told about the world and your experience of it was pretty vast. Now, there's a lot of attention paid to children's content these days, often framed in the context of this thing we call grooming. So, the GOP often rant about the negative effects of, you know, including drag queens at reading time or talking about slavery in schools. But what they're oftentimes defending is that same Reagan edict. People are fine with child grooming when its message is to preserve the sanctity of straight, white, cis, heteronormativity. Any message in support of this isn't considered grooming. It's just coded as presenting us with a quote-unquote natural way of being, aka revisionist history. Now, there is no better example of this tension, right, between what we tell kids and how we groom them to be than the biggest name in kids' stories these days, which is Disney. In the 80s, this was the dark ages of Disney, they had lost their touch with kids, and, and most people didn't think that they'd recover the magic of their earlier classical period. What differentiated 80 movies, uh, Disney movies during the 80s was their really, really dark tone. So think about movies like, you know, Flight of the Navigator, The Black Cauldron, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, All Dogs Go to Heaven, Ugh, An American Tale, all dealing with very heavy subject matters and, you know, interspecies love, um, the death, immigration, the occult. Oh my god. Watcher in the Woods, which is my favorite of the last, you know, of the Disney movies of this time. It was the last one that Betty Davis was ever in. And it's fucking terrifying. <laughs> it's about it's about kids perform this ritual on the eclipse and a girl gets lost in a, a, a you know, stranger interdimensional prison. Oh my god. It is so good so so good you know <laughs> one of my favorite titles from the 80s is benji the hunted and it's just like benji's a nice movie about a dog why are we hunting it it's 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 pretty wild but these films were reflecting more of the realities that kids were facing right unlike the cereal we were fed they didn't sugarcoat things disney was trying to compete with video games cable tv and mattel and they did so by trying to be edgy. And it, it backfired. So in 1989, Disney released The Little Mermaid. And so began the reign of dominance that exists today, right? After decades of experiencing these box office flops, The Little Mermaid was the first film in what is commonly known as this Renaissance period. From 89 to 99, it marks a decade when Disney returned to its roots, right? Drawing on familiar story tales, adapting well-known stories, relying on memorable music sung by huge stars, and a stunning mixture of hand-drawn animation and this new CGI technology, right? And it also heavily relied on stories about love. They went back to that very old model that relied on them in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s. Gone were the groups, in with the couple. Now, you know, I have a sister. Um, she's older, two years older than me. And watching her and her friends obsess over becoming a mermaid was palpable. She was 12 when it came out, and it was clear that it spoke to a very specific aspect of her personality. 
She was a singer in a kids group, and you know, the kind that performed in malls at the time, and Part of Your World became her signature ballad. Also, Ariel was a symbol of femininity, independence, and strength, and I, I saw that echoed in so many of my classmates, right? Like, and we could go on and on about how troubling the entire premise of that film is. Um, but I'll hand it back to my favorite podcaster, Malcolm Gladwell. He has a podcast called Revisionist History, and he does a wonderful three-part series on this film and on this very subject, actually. And it shows very clearly the story being told about Ariel. Um, they talk a little bit about the princesses, but we all know Ariel, Belle, Milan, Pocahontas, Elsa, literally all the Disney princesses. There has been so much attention given to these constructions of femininity through the stories that they're telling little girls about, you know, femininity and being princesses. But what about the boys? So I thought it was important for me to go back over the Renaissance period and look at the stories that they were telling little boys. One in particular, who no one sees as a boy until one special girl breaks his curse. Once upon a time in a faraway land, a young prince lived in a shining castle. Although he had everything his heart desired, the prince was spoiled, selfish, and unkind. But then, one winter's night, an old beggar woman came to the castle and offered him a single rose in return for shelter from the bitter cold. Repulsed by her haggard appearance, the prince sneered at the gift and turned the old woman away. But she warned him not to be deceived by appearances, for beauty is found within. And when he dismissed her again, the old woman's ugliness melted away to reveal a beautiful enchantress. The prince tried to apologize, but it was too late, for she had seen that there was no love in his heart. And as punishment, she transformed him into a hideous beast and placed a powerful spell on the castle and all who lived there. Ashamed of his monstrous form, the beast concealed himself inside the castle with a magic mirror as his only window to the outside world. The rose she had offered was truly an enchanted rose, which would bloom for many years. If he could learn to love another and earn her love in return, by the time the last petal fell, then the spell would be broken. If not, he would be doomed to remain a beast for all time. The years passed and he fell into despair, lost all hope for whom could ever learn to love a beast. That's the opening of the 1991 film Beauty and the Beast. This was my Disney turning point, and to some extent, its impact kind of still lingers on to this day. So, 1991 was really important in my life for a few reasons. First, I had just turned 12, and that's the year I could no longer deny that I was sexually attracted to people who identified as girls. I was raised Catholic during the 80s, and when the church, you know, then was very vocal about their disapproval of homosexuality. The 24-hour news cycle was constantly streaming images of funerals for people who died of AIDS, you know, being protested, you know, by their funerals being protested by signs that read God hates fags or fags burn in hell. Conservatives talk all the time about grooming and how susceptible young minds are to the messages they're fed as children. And they're not wrong. I got the message, okay? God hated me. I was an abomination. Anyone who loved me the way I wanted to be loved was damned to hell with me. I was cursed. Wicked. A beast. And I just hit puberty. And I was furious about it. My body felt out of control. 
parts of it were growing in ways that betrayed my wishes and other parts weren't growing enough. You know, I went from being the tallest on my baseball team to the shortest. And when I played tackle football, my friends were like holding on to me for longer. And I, I didn't understand why. And I just, I stopped playing sports and baseball, which were my two favorite sports at the time. And it made me furious. I hated the reflection I saw in the mirror. I hated pictures. I hated myself. I hated my life. But this kernel of false storytelling, that I was unlovable because I was an abomination, grew really deep in my heart. And the thing about false stories is that they have a tendency to not only root deeply, but sprout branches and leave other falsities. So like, here's how it worked. I was an abomination. God hated me. I was going to hell immediately. But anyone that loved me, families, friends, partners, would suffer the same fate. Right? I can't feel good about loving anyone back because my love condemns them. So I close my heart off to everyone and everything. By closing my heart, it ensures that I'll be alone forever, without love or closeness, which is functionally hell. So like even to this day, I have a really hard time admitting that I love somebody without a little nagging fear in the back of my head that I'll somehow damn them to hell. It's confusing and frustrating and it's, it's, it's as shitty as it sounds. And to make matters even more complicated, you know, back when I was 12 in 1991, this was a period in history where trans storytelling became a very hot topic in Hollywood. 1991 Silence of the Lambs took the top prize at the Oscars, actually beating out Beauty and the Beast for best picture. And, you know, while at film attempts to avert viewers from thinking that Buffalo Bill is a quote-unquote true transsexual, you know, the moment in the film where he reveals his idealized self, that was the first time I ever saw a trans-esque body in a motion picture. Like, they had, you know, you had drag queens, and then you had these quote-unquote transvestites, but I had never seen anybody transitioning their gender. And I became obsessed with this film, like, to the point where I can act it out. And on my boombox, yep, boombox, I listened to that song, Goodbye Horses, by Q. Lazarus, like, on repeat. Also, The Crying Game was released around that time, and, you know, Jay Davidson, who's a cis gay man, was nominated for top prizes um, for playing the lead role in that. And, in fact, uh, he was nominated for Supporting Actor and Actress in the Chicago Films Critic Association. So, that brought, you know, those performances brought with them a huge backlash against trans people specifically, and more jokes than I can count about, you know, I'm not even going to say it, but it, they were prominently featured in storylines of Ace Ventura and Naked Gun, for example. I do an in-depth analysis of this and the legacy of these depictions in um, season one, episode four, Wouldn't Hurt a Fly. But for now, it's just important to note that in 1991, I was receiving every message that I was a monster. A horrible monster who would most likely turn violent, therefore I must be eradicated. That my being, my very being, would bring harm to those I loved and those who loved me. And I deserve to be locked away forever. was four, an older child asked me who I had a crush on in school. And so I, like, willingly gave the name of a young girl in my class, 
and, you know, without even thinking about it. And I was met with, like, some pretty serious concern. She told me, quite clearly, <laughs> that I wasn't allowed to have crushes on little girls. Period. Um, I was, I was, like, devastated. Uh, for two reasons, really. Like, one, I was sad that I was no longer able to just be honest about my feelings with anyone. I immediately realized that I had to, like, question every answer that I gave from that point forward. And two, the love that I had inside for my classmate, it had nowhere to go. I couldn't talk to anyone about it, obviously, but I couldn't figure out how to stop liking her. So in the absence of any instruction, I kind of started to punish myself for every time I thought about her. And the way that I would do that is like, if I did think about her, I would just, you know, in my head, give myself some pretty severe negative self-talk. And, you know, as time went on, there were more crushes. And with each crush came like this crippling fear and shame and guilt for my interest. One time, oh God, there was this girl that I was like head over heels about. And what made it worse is that she was really nice to me. Like, typically girls stayed away from me. Like, regardless of my assignment, I existed absolutely as a little boy. I spent my time with other boys, and I never got involved or invited into any of the more, like, socially feminine activities, like doing makeup or learning how to braid hair. Its difference, though, was that I didn't get, like, my cool boy clothes, my cool hairstyles. I just sort of existed in this middle ground, and you can tell by literally any picture you see of me at this time. So when this, <laughs> when this goddess cast her loving eyes my way and actually like, you know, said words to me and laughed at my jokes and oh, complimented my dancing. Oh man, I was a goner. Okay. I would pine over this girl in my mind. Whew, I lost like months daydreaming about her. Like, about a life with her in my head. You know, this was 1991, so there was no social media of any kind. I had no pictures of her, just my imagination, right? And man, when I tell you, we held hands so hard. Oh, we like interlocked fingers, watching sunsets and eating ice cream cones, which is, of course, being in love when you're 12. (laughs) Like, one night... I just had it. I'd had it with the daydream. I was so deeply like in love and I had driven myself like sick about it. So I asked God if he could make her like me back. And at the moment I like thought that thought, the rush of guilt and shame choked me from the inside. Like I fell on the floor sobbing. My bedroom had this like really deep green carpet and I just remember sobbing into it and like watching my tears drip onto the tarp, making it like a dark, it almost turned like black. That's how much I was crying. And you know, I started crying because I realized that by asking God for her to love me back, I was damning her to hell. And I was like, I was so conflicted and sad and scared and ashamed and like looking back I hate this memory I hate it I hate the society did that to me I hate that religion did that to me but 
I also recognized that it's a really important turning point in my life because shortly after this, I watched Beauty and the Beast. And in that movie, I saw someone cursed and whose curse affected everyone around him. And only by earning love would that curse be lifted. I related so hard to those opening lines I just read. And when that title came onto the black screen and I saw that crimson red lettering and the crescendo of that sad music, it hit me. It spoke to like that really, really tender part of my soul that was grieving. And I I think that's exactly what the people at Disney wanted. You know, because then the sun rises and the music changed and I saw Belle. And I was like, geez, there's this brown, dreamy-eyed girl, or brown-haired, brown-eyed, dreamy-haired girl, you know, who's a little quirky and odd and smart, who loves to read, and who's strong and independent, and she loves her dad, and someone who can, like, look beyond the facade and see the real me and not be afraid. And that was it. That was my solution. Get a girl to break the spell. Someone who's immune to God, to society, to the opinions of her father, see myself the way she saw me, be the man she needed me to be so that she could love me. Like, obviously, my love for her was a given, right? This girl was exceptional. After all, she was able to love a beast. Now, the whole reason my crush didn't love me back, probably, it's not like we ever talked about it, is because she didn't see me as a boy. So, I studied. I studied boys and men in movies, TV shows, in life, and I did my very best impression. The expression, fake it till you make it, perfectly encapsulates this experience. And if you're cringing, it's because what I've just described is pretty classic codependence. But that's the through line that runs beneath the surface of The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, and Aladdin. Each of the main characters, Ariel, Beast, and Aladdin, undergo some significant change in order to achieve the love they seek. But in public debate, it's only Ariel's loss of her voice that gets the attention. Beast and Aladdin, as far as I can tell, are completely unexamined. Now, in recent weeks, there's been this controversy over the new live-action version of The Little Mermaid, right? Where Halle Berry, a young black girl, is playing Ariel. And a lot of white people are losing their minds defending the origins of Ariel as a white woman. Arian, Ariel, it's close. But the truth is, she's not a white woman at all. In fact, she's not even a woman. Ariel is based on a bisexual man named Hans Christian Andersen, who wrote the original fairy tale. He's the one flittering about, longing to be part of a world where he could be, you know, with his prince. A long time ago, in the beginning of season one, I gave everybody an introduction episode teaching them about, like, how to do a film theory breakdown. And I talked specifically about Hans Christian Andersen and the Ugly Duckling, right? He's an illegitimate son of a monarch, and his stories were all about his suffering. And this one is no different. This point was enunciated when Howard Ashman and Alan Menken, two gay composers and songwriters, were brought in to make the animated version of The Little Mermaid a musical. The Little Mermaid is about gay longing. I posit that's, you know, why it's not overtly feminist. Because it's not about being a woman. It's about casting off your identity and familial obligations to be with the man you love. I mean, if it's an identity that you don't care about because you don't love yourself, then what's the loss? Think about that song, Poor Unfortunate Soul. It won't cost much, just your voice. Well, 
If you live in shame and in secret, hiding your affinities for a world you can't belong to, that's longing. What does your identity mean if it, you know, you can exchange it for living happily ever after with the one you love? In the original book, the Little Mermaid is so heartbroken at the end that she turns into sea foam. Sea foam? I mean, talk about a meaningless existence without love. <laughs> Just for Beauty and the Beast, originally based on like the Brothers Grimm tale, you know, the duo of Ashman and Mencken came back to compose the score and the music. And this time they joined Linda Wolverton, the first woman to ever write an animated feature for Disney. Now, what's cool about Beauty and the Beast is how Wolverton crafted, you know, Belle, right? She made her this strong-willed book lover who's, quote, proactive in her world, isn't a victim, and makes change for herself. She doesn't wait around for a prince. Like, <laughs> Nancy's mission was intentional. Taking a feminist approach to crafting Belle's story, she infused her with qualities that Wolverton appreciated in herself. That said, with so much focus on Belle, why didn't she take that tender pass at Beast? Now, you know, Ashman, the composer, at the time, learned that he was dying of complications from AIDS. And he was actually brought on to Beauty and the Beast to work not only on the music, but as a creative executive producer. So this queer man, stricken with this horrible disease that could very well kill everyone he loved and was, was put at the helm of this story. And lo and behold, we have the subtext of queer shame in the time of AIDS. Now, take that into consideration when looking at the ending scene where Beast dies, right? Belle tells the Beast that she loves him only after the second he dies. In the 90s, it was quite common for people to profess their love for queer people after they died of HIV and AIDS. Up until the moment their breath was in their bodies, they remained monsters. Ashman died in 1991, just before the release of Beauty and the Beast. He lived long enough to see the private screening, and in the film, there's a beautiful dedication to him that summarizes the point that I'm making. To our friend Howard, who gave a mermaid her voice and a beast his soul, we will be forever grateful. Howard Ashman, 1950 to 1991. He was the first uh, Oscar winner to die of AIDS and HIV. He actually died before the ceremony, and his longtime partner accepted the award on his behalf. Now, what's interesting is just before joining Beauty and the Beast, Ashman was working on his most beloved project that he never finished. That project was 1992's Aladdin, a subject I wanted to talk about with my friend AJ Nasir, a comedy writer and steward of young storytellers, a program where mentors help middle school students write their own screenplays. One of the things I really enjoy about this setup is that I can feel your knees, like, grazing oh, against yeah. my leg hair. Yeah. It feels very masculine. Right. Especially since I rolled up my jeans, <laughs> like I'm going yeah, trout fishing. So I just want you to know that one day I'll have a professional recording yeah. studio. We won't be yeah. sitting in the hottest closet. And then we'll reminisce <laughs> about the days of your... That you're, you're gently tucked underneath two pillows. Yeah. And my <laughs> bald head's going to get real shiny. <laughs> I'm already sweating. Yeah. I'm immediately Absolutely. sweating. Which is great because now we're going to talk about boyhood. Yes. It's like a wonderful it's segue. Sweaty time of life. So I want to talk to you a little bit about like, take 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 me back to a mysterious place. Yeah. In the land of, is it Acraba? Acraba. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And tell me a little bit about first who you are and why Aladdin 
spoke to you. Great. Yeah. Uh, so my name's AJ Nasir. Uh, but obviously, first name is Abraham. Uh, otherwise, why known is as that obvious? Ibrahim. Yeah, it's not <laughs> obvious. It's obvious to you, I guess, because you know me. I do. But yeah. Um, so. And how did you get to AJ? So when I was in third or fourth grade, whenever you, you know, maybe even earlier, probably first or second grade, mm-hmm. whenever you first start learning about the presidents, mm-hmm. uh, we learned about Abraham Lincoln. Mm-hmm. So Abraham, just to back up for a second, so. Uh, my background is my father is from Syria. My mother is Greek. Um, so uh, Abraham is my is a family name. And, uh, you know, nobody like didn't know any of Abraham's uh, growing up. Um, Which was certainly in, in uh, Western Pennsylvania, rural Pennsylvania, uh, semi rural Pennsylvania, suburb of Pittsburgh. Um, no other Nasirs, obviously. There was a, you know, Middle Eastern community, a Syrian community, but, uh, you know, I think because my parents came from different cultures, even though there's a lot of overlap between Greek culture and the Middle East, um, we didn't necessarily spend a lot of time, you know, with, uh, like, a lot of Greeks or a lot of Syrians. We did uh, some events here and there. Mm-hmm. Um but for the most part, it was just being more just part of like the, uh, you know, m- mostly white. Uh, I think like Italian was the biggest ethnicity in my town. And We're it was, infectious. It's yeah. An, it's an infectious you know, disease, those yeah. Italians. Yeah. You get so, in. Yes, you get in. Just everywhere. like the Irish. Just, yeah. just stains your clothes like oil. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I, I think that like either way, um, there was the, always a bit of. I always got like, what are you? Where are you from? What's your deal? Mm-hmm. I don't know how to classify you. Why are you so handsome? <clears throat> why are why are your eyebrows so bushy? And your uh, why do you have such a heavy mustache at at ten? To, at ten, <laughs> uh, I did. I think one of those same years, second, third, or fourth grade, for Christmas, my dad shaved my mustache Christmas morning. He took me upstairs after opening all the presents. He was like, I have one more thing for you. And like took me upstairs with this electric like brawn razor and shaved off my considerable uh uh mustache. How did that feel? Felt amazing. Really? I felt like so yeah, I went to school after the holidays with like such a confidence because I was so self-conscious about it. Mm. Um but anyway. Uh where was I going with this? Oh, Abraham. So uh, we were learning about Abraham Lincoln and I was getting made fun of uh, because the kids were teasing me and calling me Abraham Lincoln which I just didn't I also I already felt I think a little different and so that was like you know I got picked on a lot and so that was just like another thing mm-hmm. and I went home and was like I don't want to be I'm not going back so you give me a nickname and then uh, it came with AJ so my middle name is Gabriel which obviously does not start with a J. Uh, and in in uh, Arabic, you can spell... You can spell Gabriel with a J. So, uh, so my dad was like, oh, we call you AJ. But he grew up speaking French in addition to Arabic, so he would call me AJ. <laughs> and he also, like, doesn't... Like, I remember it that way. He, he remembers... He also was like, well, there was a race car driver named AJ Foyt, so we called you AJ Foyt. I was like, that's not why you came up with it, but anyway. 
just in case he ever listens to this and refutes my retelling of, this, of my origin. <clears throat> well, no, we we have receipts. Dad. We have receipts. We have receipts. My my second grade mind can remember. Um, and for the listeners, um, my my name had I been assigned male at birth was also going to be AJ. It was, yeah, was going to be yeah. Anthony Joseph. Nice. Um, and my mom would have called me Tony. Yeah. And she said TJ, and I was like. Under no circumstances would I have been a TJ. TJ, yeah. I would have been an AJ. Yeah, for or sure. Or people just would have called me Tony. Yeah. Because of Tony Monero, obviously. Yeah. <clears throat> John Travolta would have solved that for everyone. 100%. But, um, yeah, I think I love your name, AJ. Oh, thanks. Yeah. I'm like, oh, that could have, you would have had the same name. You would have had the same name. And, and then, yeah. And they both would have been made up. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> both would have been, like, amalgamations and Frankenstein monsters. I also, in high school, I was... Uh, I didn't want to tell that whole story of how I got to AJ. So I used to tell people my name was, my middle name was Joseph. Mm-hmm. I said, oh, it's Abraham Joseph. Wow. Because I was like so socially like worried about being yeah. weird and having to explain that whole story and get real sweaty doing it. Totally. And I just wasn't confident enough to, and so I, don't, I think that for all that whole period, because I went to a different high school than middle school. Mm-hmm. So I started over kind of. So lucky. Um, except for like a couple friends that came that were in the same middle school as me. Uh, so yeah, I, I was just like, no, it's Abraham Joseph. Cause I didn't want to, I didn't want to go into it. And it wasn't until college that I became comfortable with myself again to do that. So, which is interesting because, you know, a key, a key moment in Aladdin is that he becomes Prince Ali. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Which is fine. Yeah. Aladdin, Ali. Yeah. It's interesting. That, right. Like, but he, yeah, he changed yeah. his name to invent his new persona. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that there was a persona that came along with AJ? Yeah, I think so. I mean, whether, I don't think it was conscious at that time, at that age, but I definitely think it was like, I remember, I think, deriving a lot of confidence from the first day of school and when the teacher would go around and do roll and call me and say, oh, like Abraham, and then they would fumble my last name. And I'd be like, oh, it's Nasir, and i go by AJ. And that was like, this is my, this is who I am. Yeah. And that's what I'm calling myself. So it was like a declaration. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Um, watching teachers fumble over your last name is, I think. Yeah, it's, it's pretty funny. <sighs> it is. Well, yeah. Well, it can be. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I, I always like to play a game of like, ooh, I wonder how they're going to say it. You know, know, like it was, a, it became a game because I think otherwise you just, get really irritated and you know sad i guess or or you just it's i guess it was a way of spinning the negative connotation of like i'm gonna make this a game how are they gonna say and then it would be like a thing with our family like guess how this teacher says it you know like and then it would be like a thing of oh that's a new one i haven't heard that one before they just said the n was silent like what (laughs) why did they do that like i you know and my name is weird like it's n-s-e-i-r so the the double the starting with two consonants is like weird for people um and without having a vowel like i had one time someone was like are you sure you're spelling your name correct it's not n a i was like no it's just, there's n s there's nothing in between there's mm-hmm. no vowel in between uh it is un- it is unfathomable how ridiculous people get when they can't pronounce something yeah 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 um just ask Khaki, like, khaki Bacomini. Yeah. Is, yeah. That's a good one. Uh, yeah. There's a teacher. Do you think that they would get, that 
that the teacher focused so much on how to pronounce your last name that her brain just shut down of how to pronounce yes. what is a pretty common first name. 1,000%. <laughs> yeah. Um, you're 12. Yes. Allegedly. Allegedly. According to my I'm between math. 10 or 12. <laughs> Somewhere. Rounding, but a very, rounding the bases. Very impressionable. To, a very impressionable age. Very impressionable. Way. Formative age. And, yeah. You know, one of the things that Republicans and the GOP really like to clamor on about is grooming kids. These movies really did groom us. Yeah. But they don't call it grooming. Right. When it's presenting something that is consistent with white supremacy. Right. That's just quote unquote normal. Yeah. But Aladdin is very different because this is not a story about a traditional whiteness. Right. This is a story that takes place in, in a mythical place called Acraba. Um, but it is loosely, at least near Egypt, because they fly past the um, the Sphinx. Yeah. And so I think it presents us with something um a, a very interesting uh understanding of like this is a prince right this is our first example of a prince and he even though he's voiced by a white man he's he's not he's not an american white man yeah what did that mean to you so it's i mean i and i i have to kind of split my response into two into two sort of because there's the there's the retrospective that I did this week in preparation for this conversation. <laughs> and also like just how I viewed that movie as an adult, even before I knew we were going to have this conversation, mm -hmm. which is obviously very different from how I first viewed it. Okay. Like then that movie came out, it instantly became my favorite Disney movie. And the same with my sister and even our whole family, like, you know, playing that CD in the car, Arabian nights was like one of my favorite songs. Um, you know, and I didn't, obviously at the time, really, like, I knew that that wasn't my experience, or that wasn't, like, how my dad grew up in Syria, but I still knew that was the first time that anyone who even remotely looked like me, or came from anything re remotely looking like my culture, was in anything, and it became, like, a... Like it, it, I mean, you know, I don't, I, I don't know exactly how it, how much it like influenced me or, or not, but it definitely, I definitely remember seeing that and feeling like represented on some level. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, obviously with the benefit of hindsight, you, you, we could dissect all day, all the things that are very problematic about that movie. Um, and maybe we will, which we're going, which we're going. <laughs> but like, this is after all the stories we tell, the stories we tell. about the way we read movies. Yes. But like, I, I'm trying to first just say as a 10 to 12 year old seeing that movie, um, I really felt like this is so cool, uh, because I could be Aladdin, like, mm -hmm. I, you know, running around doing parkour in like a <laughs> mythical <laughs> desert place. Uh, and you know, hanging out with the coolest genie ever. Uh, and also, but just like seeing, you know, yeah, I mean, just having like a vaguely Middle Eastern, North African right. aesthetic applied to something and having characters who weren't white, 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 mm -hmm. uh, you know, even though Jasmine and Aladdin were pretty European or Western, mm -hmm. um, in terms of how they were drawn and how they sounded, but, but technically Caucasian, but technically yeah. not yeah not right yeah, yeah exactly uh so you know yeah that was that was definitely had an impact for sure yeah um 
you know, and was something that I think in at the time was like very felt very good. So at this point in time, when you saw Aladdin, you had been AJ for yeah years for a couple years at least few years yeah. Did you identify more with Aladdin or with Ali? Mm, I think Aladdin. Yeah. Yeah. You're do you because do you feel like you're like him? I don't know. I mean, uh, maybe in the sense that I like to jump around and (laughs) (laughs) steal bread. No. um, Yeah. I mean, I think I I definitely thought Aladdin was way cooler than Ali, but like that's also the the thing they're trying to tell you is that you know you shouldn't try to be somebody else; you should be yourself. So, original version of him is, of course, the one that I gravitate because that's what the movie told me to gravitate towards. Is the the diamond in the rough? Yeah. Exactly. Well, it's very interesting that you you bring up it's the thing that they tell you that you should be because when I when I I, I recently watched Aladdin in preparation for this conversation also. Originally I was going to write this about Aladdin and then I watched Beauty and the Beast and was like, "Oh, no, that's my root, not Aladdin." Oh, Aladdin yeah. exacerbates it. Yeah. Um let's say let's let's bring let's bring out little little AJ mm-hmm. to this conversation now. If if at ten or twelve, yeah, <laughs> we'll keep your can't, we'll, can't wait to look up. Yeah, the I know. Day of this movie. Hey, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, and that's no, fine. That's right. Same here. Same. Yeah, here. theoretically, I think everybody has a, a a formulaic movie at twelve that really yeah. changes their perspective on themselves. And, yeah. But you know what? I've been wrong before. I will be wrong again. Yeah. I'm fine. Same. I won't die on this hill. Same. Um, when you were ten or twelve, if someone handed you a magic genie lamp what would you have wished for? Mm. I mean, I think, like, I definitely wouldn't have wished to be a prince to get a girl. Uh, It probably would have been more, you know, being, like, a hockey player or something like that. Like, I, you know. Isn't that the same thing? Yeah, but (laughs) but I'm saying, I don't, like, I wouldn't have wished to be somebody different to win somebody else. Mm -hmm. Like, I would have wished for, you know, I think something that was more... Uh, just like my own goal that didn't like the the becoming a prince his not goal is not to be a prince his goal is to get Jasmine and to do that he has to become a prince I would have just wished to be a professional hockey player and period not like so I can impress you know so and so like it would it would have just been like right you know or, that comes with being a professional hockey player right? yeah but I like like at that age I I was I wouldn't have even been on my mind right. Okay, so that is very interesting that you bring that up because I agree. Yeah. Is that when you hand a 12-year-old a magic lamp, the first thought that that 12-year-old is going to think is most likely not, I would like a life partner. Yeah, it's not romantic. No. Yeah. Not at all. Yeah. But in Aladdin very specifically, his entire, he has no food. Yeah. He has no shelter. Yeah, you think he would wish for... Anything. Anything, Also, he already has a magic carpet. Right. Right, yeah. And he's so chill about his current circumstances that even before he even has a wish, he's already given away his third one. Mm Mm-hmm. So this is not a guy who's super self-interested or focused. Yeah. And that, to me bleeds over from be- the, the if you drew a through line between beast and aladdin yeah that's the through line yeah is that there's no there's no sense of self right there's yeah. like getting through day to day and like eating 
But even when he goes to great lengths to get bread, he immediately gives, gives it back. more gives it than up. more than a fa- like they could have all split the bread between those two kids. Yeah, he just and, gives it to them. Yeah, even the monkey mm-hmm. doesn't need half a loaf of bread. Right, he's a monkey. Right. Yeah. So I I found that to be so interesting, um, because I know I have struggled with codependence. Yeah. And I have struggled with getting in relationships and changing in order to get love from the person that I'm with. Yeah. And I think that it is because I saw Beauty and the Beast when I was twelve. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure that's not entirely all, but it's part of it. No, but it's it's well, yeah. You're indoctrinated to think that you are not complete unless you have the partner yes the the funny thing though too is that like jasmine is the opposite at least in the beginning where she's like i don't need this nor do i want it mm-hmm. um but then it's the exact thing that she like also you know well i mean there's you know also this is me fresh off reading a bunch of stuff that jasmine really doesn't have any agency in that movie but that like at least when she does mm-hmm it's very much of like I. Th- she leaves. Yeah, she escapes. Yeah, I mean, Bella's, it's not her goal to marry yeah. to have a to find a prince. Like, Correct. Yeah, it's a law that has been placed on her, and she's fighting it as best that she can. Yeah, I feel like Belle. Belle was written so the script Beauty and the Beast was written by a woman. It was the first time a woman had never written a feature uh, animated film. Mm. You can see that clearly in Belle, right? Yeah, definitely a feminist. In Jasmine, there's also clearly an attempt at a strong woman. Yeah. But in both Beauty and the Beast and in Aladdin, they forget to take that look at the boys. Yeah. They forget to inspect the messages that they're telling little boys. Yeah. And I think that that's... I think that you can see the remnants of that in our generation. In those, I think there's problematic messages in Eric in Beast and definitely in Aladdin... But when we talk about Disney movies, we never talk about the boys. Yeah. We only talk about the princesses. Yeah. And I believe, um, you know, one of the things I'm trying to do is suss out, like, what is the message that you walked away from with Aladdin? And are there lasting? I mean, I think the, I think the, well, I, I think one of the lessons from, from Aladdin, but also from, uh, from, uh, Beauty and the Beast and from Little Mermaid that I think you're touching on too is that like the the lesson you can take away is that for boys women are a thing to be pursued and to be won. Yeah. And you should go to any lengths that you can in order to win them. Uh whether it's changing yourself or curing a curse or making them human and not a mermaid like whatever it is, it's your job and and your right to go after them with you know right whatever means you can which is strange it's so at the in the trailer this i asked people to answer the question is john mcclain a good husband (laughs) right and the answer is no no it's not not. but the things that make him a terrible partner make him a wonderful um agent of change yeah domestic and and um, international terrorism yeah exactly but that means that for his wife she's always in stress yeah in distress yeah In Disney movies, if you're a boy, you have to be a prince. Yeah. And even if you're poor. Yeah. You have to use one of your wishes Mm -hmm. to not just be wealthy or to not just be cared for, to be 
a a master of your kingdom. Yeah. You have to have people. You have to have power. You have to have all of these things, regardless of whether you want them or not, which leads us to the Lion King. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah. it's much more direct, right, yeah. in, in the Lion King. Where does that situate you as that little boy, AJ, of like, did it, did, did you feel like a great sense of responsibility when you were 12 to like no. do anything? No. Just to, you know, get grades and stuff. Like there was no, yeah, no, I don't, I don't think so. And like, I, I didn't grow up in a, in a house where like, I didn't grow up in a very traditional household in terms of culture, uh, you know, where you were being pressured to like do that kind of thing to to like oh someday you're gonna have a family and this is gonna be I mean certainly not at that age but like even later um I never felt pressured to you know get married and have kids and stuff definitely like you know in the sense that like in terms of like forming a unit right like Mm -hmm. that's what those movies are telling you like you need in order to be whole you need to form a unit Mm -hmm. and continue the tradition of like getting married and then having kids and then so they can get married and have more kids and stuff that's definitely part of my like ethnic identity is Greek and Syrians just love to get married and have babies. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say my parents were probably not as like, um, they didn't hit that as much as maybe, uh, others from, you know, similar or same cultures would have. So yeah, at that age definitely didn't feel like the pressure to live up to anything. When did you remember the first time you thought of like wanting to get married? Um, probably college really yeah maybe and you always but not even like yeah. but not like not just in the sense that like i know this i'll want this someday but i wasn't like um i can't wait to get married. i wasn't like okay. in college like, i can't wait to get married and you've always wanted kids yeah okay yeah yeah i have i'm the opposite yeah <laughs> yeah i didn't think i'd ever get married or have kids yeah. i'm sort of still shocked that i was married for 10 years right I like forget some I don't I mean obviously I don't ever forget it but I sure. always it's just like it's it feels like living a different life yeah yeah especially a like person yeah uh when I was little I thought I was going to move to San Francisco um live my life completely secretly from my family mm-hmm. because um of who I was and uh that they would never know me that they would know never know a partner like the fact that I got married also was like publicly on television as a married person yeah wild to me yeah i think that like i think more what what you know what i strived for and probably was more of a focus of my upbringing was like making something of yourself um not finding another person to make you whole so like in the sense that and i'm not i don't think i realized this at the time but again in looking back on it the way that aladdin strives to go from that street rat to this big deal prince like that's probably more what i identified with was that like he turned himself into something mm-hmm. he he t- brought himself from rags to riches literally mm-hmm. even though he did it via wish um you know that was more i think the lesson that i took away from that was that like you have to make something yourself in order to matter right not that it's like about pursuing a partner or like winning a woman but that you just, you can't be anything if you're not at a certain station, I guess. Or if you haven't made something of yourself, you don't matter. 
Right, that you're, that you're limitless. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's so interesting. Um, because if you look at his... I mean, Aladdin is essentially, like, the least interesting... <laughs> Do you need a towel to no, write this? Right? Okay. Aladdin is, like, the least interesting part of the For movie. Sure. Yeah. Right? He has that great opening song, and he's really charming. But, like, he he doesn't change. Yeah. His name changes... And he wishes to change. Back. And it changes. It changes right back. Yeah. Or he just he becomes Al. Yeah. Actually, Al. he changes yeah, it a yeah, third yeah. time. Call yeah. me Al, which is a name given to him by somebody else. Yeah. Right. Which also is a Western name that further makes him not ethnic or like <laughs> Middle Eastern or North African or South Asian at all. Nothing. So just, it's just, call call me Al. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's. It's a very strange thing. And, like, you know, he's always a good person. He ignores all the jewels. Well, that's the thing goes, is, like, yeah, you, you, they didn't even, sorry to cut you off. No, go ahead. But, like, yes, they didn't even make him, like, uh, th- they didn't even make him an immoral, like, p- person in the beginning that he had to grow into this person. Mm-hmm. Like, he was already a good dude yeah. who was giving away his bread yep. and doing whatever. It's just that he was poor. That's it. And that was it. But, like, you know, and not, to, and, you know, whether they had made him, you know, uh, like a, a jerk one way or the other, regardless of his cla- his status, like, yeah, he has no arc. No. Other than, he, other than he learns he doesn't need to be rich in order to, like, or whatever, but, like, he, yeah. But he doesn't but need he to doesn't be actually change. to get he Jasmine. He just learns something about himself, but he doesn't actually change. Right. I think that that's ultimately, like, the thing that I walked away with from watching Aladdin again was, like, he earns the respect of rich people mm-hmm. who have the power to change laws yeah, instead of just wishing for those laws to be yeah. not there. Or doing any work to, like, have them change or... Right. Yeah. Or just wishing for literally... Like, when, when he... When he says okay you have three wishes he goes what do you want to wish for and his response is well there's this girl Mm -hmm. and it's just like i don't well and again you're you're coming like this is also where they from from even though they represented the culture in a very like in not a great way uh they also did everything they could to dismantle anything that wasn't Western culture. Mm-hmm. So it was started out as a culture where you had arranged marriages mm-hmm. and things like that, uh, which we in Western culture typically look down on and find very odd and strange and sure. horrible. And I'm not saying they are not one way or the other, but either way, what they did was they, by the end, they make it so that like basically that like Agrabah mirrors like western culture in the sense that you can have love marriages and the, mm-hmm. he just writes the he, the dad just changes the law because he can't and and so you know they they just see they systematically over the course of the movie just like made it america yeah <laughs> you know with like movies are really effective at selling white supremacy yeah just from from you know from to boot you can just it wraps yeah. it up really really nice really and they're nicely. so good at it and it's so it is a methodology for grooming kids. Yeah. Also, a lot of these movies are marketed to kids who are pre-sexual. Yeah. But that idea, that planting, that seed, even in boys, 
starts really early. We've ta- I talked so much about it in The Princesses. Yeah. But no one talks about it in The Princesses that, like, their whole uh, being is wrapped up in gaining the love of this woman. Mm-hmm. From just, from doing something, from being something, from changing themselves in a certain way. Yeah. The argument that I made for Beauty and the Beast is that the Beast is an orphaned prince who answers his own door and is basically gaslit by an enchanted person mm-hmm. who tricks an 11-year-old yeah. into a lifetime sentence yeah. of making one mistake of being a royal person who's vain. Right. <laughs> a royal person who, who dismisses the poor. At 11. Which is at 11 yeah. with no parents and yeah. no good moral behavior. And not only is he cursed, but his entire kingdom is cursed. Right. To be alone. To be alone. Yeah. But like, but also, why is his staff cursed? Yeah. That's not his responsibility. Yeah. Why is that now his responsibility? And also, it's not enough for him to learn to love. He must earn love in return. Right. Which is... How? how, Why? Yeah. By with a ticking clock. With a ticking clock. Yeah. And also he's cursed at 11. So that's puberty. He's had yeah. 10 years to his 21st birthday. There's so many problems in that movie. Yeah. And equally the problems in Aladdin reflect that of like you have three wishes, you give away one and one you, you, he basically just he never gets a, a wish for himself. Yeah. Ever. Yeah. I mean he gets he the first wish is for Jasmine. The second wish is to save his life, but the genie gives it to him. He doesn't even get to say it. Right. And the third one, he gives the genie his freedom. Yeah. Annihilating any opportunity for him to actually get a wish. To actually have a wish, yeah. And I think that that's shitty. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really shitty. I think that the, the message that I'm walking away with is that, like, you know, little boys are supposed to love little girls. Yeah. And that's... And that's the message we tell little boys. Yeah. And I I don't like it. <laughs> well, do you think that also, like like you said, coming out of the dark ages in the 80s, where Disney was maybe looking at, like, all the John Hughes movies and the success of, like, having a girl pursue a boy. Uh, and they were like, how can we do that for the preteens or the pre-preteens? I, I, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, And then basically replicating that same... Like, that same dynamic, yes, but in a different, you know, in a different way. I actually think it's even more complicated than that. Um, specifically because um, two, two gay men were so heavily involved in the creation of these three storylines. Mm-hmm. I think that the queer longing of, of wanting love so badly and having it be so far away from you yeah. is in the subtext of all of these films. And I think that while they are vehicles for this very hegemonic, heterosexual, monogamous love coupling, underneath that is the trauma of you, you know, when you are gay, you are dismissed because of who you love. Mm -hmm. Love is so far away. And so I think a lot of that longing, like, made it... um, made it harder to not love these movies on a certain in a certain way because a they're so well done they're so beautiful they're all yeah, like the music's and fantastic music. and it's, i think it's because it's infused with real life longing mm-hmm. that if you don't if it's not a lived experience like every like should be told when you watch a movie like philadelphia or even if you've seen brokeback mountain yeah 
you it's it's heartbreaking Mm -hmm. to be gay (laughs) it's really heartbreaking to be trans a lot of people always vote for those movies at the oscars because they are dramatic right palpably dramatic and they're always for straight people straight people to consume the drama but without being affected by it and i think that these movies do that really well so that you know a cis man and a trans man can walk away from the same movie and still get the message of like we should be we should like and it's you know it's mirroring attraction right so like i am attracted to femmes so I saw Jasmine and I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I've talked to a genie for her. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, even though clearly Bill's my girl, but yeah. Um, so I, I think it's really, I think that's one of the ways in which they get a pass at being, at not looking at the boys. Yeah. I think it was so much about, and you know, Robin Williams's performance as the genie really pulled a lot of that focus, but he has the arc. Yeah. Aladdin doesn't have... Aladdin has three name changes. Yeah. Sister becomes three different people. Yeah. <laughs> like, that's a lot. For... And Jasmine really has no arc either. No. Yeah. No. She goes from, like, not wanting to be a princess really at all, and then being like, no, no, I'm chill. Yeah. I want... But I want this guy. Yeah. I choose him. Yeah. I choose Al. I choose Al. AJ, AJ now... If I handed you a magic lamp, yes, and said you could have three wishes, what would your three wishes be? Oh man, uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't know. They you're, would. Well, you're happily married. Yeah, I would say they probably. I don't know. I would make myself sound like a real saint. I probably would try to do what I think a lot of should have done, which is like help all the people. <laughs> Yeah, the poor. How yeah. about the other poor Make people? everybody not poor and yeah. not have to beg for bread. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I don't know that they would be so... I feel like also now I, f- I feel like I'd be too stubborn to wish for, like, an easy out for what I want in life. i like, no, I want to earn it. Like, I don't want to just wish for it. But I'm also maybe giving myself too you, much credit. Do you think capitalism... Do you think that the, the storytelling really worked on you? <laughs> yeah, maybe. Because if I could wish for, you know... I would go to Greece. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With my yeah. cat. Yeah. And not come back. And not come back. I would yes. have a boat and I would float on that boat. Yes. And that's what I would do. Have your own island. I would have I wouldn't have my own island. I just want a boat. I don't need to yeah. own anything or do anything with just like access to the land to get some food. Yeah. I swim in the ocean. I thought about it many times. Yeah. It's just like if I didn't have to do all these things, I literally wouldn't. Yeah. And that's new. Yeah. Old I productive Casey would have would have like pre transition uh, Casey would have just worked until the day the, do the grind. Yeah. And respect earn, the grind. Worked to earn everything and now yeah, I'm yeah, like yeah. zero. Yeah. Yeah. Because tomorrow I could not be alive. Right. Like, what does it matter? What is the whole point? Yeah. 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 I also don't I mean, I think I know exactly what I would wish for, but I think it would be so existential it would put everyone to sleep. Right. Like, you know, just out out the whatever the word equality is mm, in yeah. every every way yeah if i could just snap my fingers and say like when you look at me and i look at you we see two people just, and we say one right that there is no difference yeah and like with everyone yeah and i think that would fundamentally change everything so much for sure that i wouldn't know what else to wish for because yeah that would be enough. if we just did that one thing everything yeah from the bugs to the stars I mean, I would get over my 
excessive aversion to C words, which I hate more than life itself. <laughs> but like, what if, what if there was a oneness with that C word? And C word is, is cockroaches for anyone listening who doesn't know what a C word is. I was curious. I actually. fucking hate them. There's a lot of ways you could have gone there. I know. <laughs> There's only one. There's only those. one. It's the cockroach. Thank you so much for sitting in this sweaty closet with me. Yeah. Having this conversation. Um, from the bottom of my heart. Thank you. I this wish, is really fun. I wish you had a magic carpet. So that would be fun. I would probably, if I were to wish for anything out of the actual movie Aladdin, it would definitely have been the carpet. Yeah. I would immediately wish for the ability to fly. Like, yeah, for sure. A thousand percent. Yeah. I mean, invisible, sure. That's fun too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, it's or not like, flying. Yeah, flying, teleportation, mm-hmm. just instant travel. Fly. Yeah, I'll just fly there. I mean... On a carpet. Yeah. Take a nap on a... On a nice, like, Persian rug, too. I, I mean, mean, get out of town. Tell me, tell me about it. That would be the best. That was the only thing that was like, oh, this is real. Like, we have that rug in my house. Like, that was <laughs> like watching Aladdin. I was like, oh, we have that rug. Everybody I know has that rug. Did you try to fly it? No, because I knew. The, it wasn't you really didn't magic. even pretend. I don't think so because I think I think if I had seen Aladdin when I was like seven, I think. It, but like just because it yeah. came out between when I was ten or twelve, I didn't um, have that. But I did go into carpet stores and pretended to fly on carpets yeah, that yeah. looked just like that. Yes, yes. And we still, I still have a carpet like that in my house right now. Do you think you can go home and try to make it fly? <laughs> yes, definitely. I think you should. I, you know, I'll I, call I, you from the ER. I think I, ten to twelve year old AJ would love that. Yeah, for sure. What if maybe did you, did you say call me from the ER? Yeah, it's when pretending I, when I fly it off a roof. No, I would do because that's why that's why I'm like him doing parkour. I would oh. have taken my carpet, jumped off a roof, and then hurt myself. No, the point yeah. of it is you you have an, a ground to air takeoff. Yes. yes. Okay. Yeah, that's true. Very important. Here's the last. There was the last thing I want to say about Aladdin. You can cut this if you want. But. I'm not. But I'm. This is not. I don't have an editor. This is, yeah, <laughs> this is it. Fair enough. This is long play. That <laughs> I think that like in again because and, and w- I when I said at the beginning about how I felt about it at the time, like not as a boy but as a person of Middle Eastern descent versus how I feel about it now. I think that I, I, uh, I think what I appreciated about it now, I still appreciate to a certain extent that like at least people who looked like me were represented at some level, but I think like the way that it was represented was so cartoonish literally and, you know, literally that it, I don't, I don't know, like I'm conflicted about it. Like, I think that movie was still important and I'm glad that it got made and I'm glad that like, but it was also so, it was the, the, it was so skewed and not, and like the people who were, had accents or were actual Middle Eastern people were all the villains. Yes. And all the heroes were Western and of lighter skin. And so like, yeah. it didn't do anything to like Advanced. make people yeah. think differently about Middle Eastern people or make me feel any less othered. It just made me feel like, well, at least I'm seen over here, but like no one gets me better now yeah. because of it. I, um, I understand that. You know, so... Aladdin does not have facial hair. He doesn't no. have chest hair. He doesn't have any of the traditional... He's got the big, like, he's yes. got big eyes, where Jafar's, yeah, Jafar's yeah. got the, the hooked nose right. and the beady eyes and mm-hmm. the and the curly mm-hmm. beard right. and, like, in the accent. Wears the more traditional, like, garb, mm-hmm. you know? He he is, yeah. And the, the, other, the other guy, the... 
the thief who tries to go into the Cave of Wonders yeah. also has a much more traditionally Middle Eastern yeah. aesthetic. Right? And it, but also just, yeah, like this slovenly, mm-hmm. you know, shady guy who yeah. is like, yeah, he's just like, and I know you and I are sweaty right now, but it's for a different reason, mm-hmm. who's just like always sweaty and trying to like sell you something. This right. like, you know, shady person who is probably a criminal or worse. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's the, you know... That's the representation. I really look forward to that um, that representation fading off, like the, the Middle Eastern terrorist. I don't know if... Or the will, magical desert person. Or the magical desert person. Yeah. 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 Like, the there's a very lovely TikTok video that shows you, like, how they create, like, a Middle Eastern aesthetic in Hollywood. It's yeah, like I've seen guitar, that. Like it's a really crying good, yeah. It's so brilliant. Yeah. But, you know... Again, white supremacy, the modality of white supremacy in movie telling, movie making is just like, we're so used to it. It, It is the way Hollywood has told movies for so long. Yeah. And it starts by default with a waspy, straight, cis, heterosexual man as default as a viewpoint. And I think I would really enjoy watching an Aladdin written from your perspective mm-hmm. yeah. because I think that culturally it would be very different. I also think that Jasmine written, like you look at what's going on in Iran right now. Yeah. I would love to see uh, an Aladdin redone from Jasmine's pers- true perspective. Yeah. Where she doesn't marry him at the end or like when she, or where they it, run off and they reject the royalty and they go yeah. be in the wherever, yeah. you know, but either just, way it's like not. Yeah. Yeah. Her whole life isn't about, marrying a prince and his life isn't about being one yeah exactly exactly (sighs) we couldn't have summed that up better that was a good good ending look at that (laughs) all right let's get out of this sweaty thing let's do it thank you so much aj thank you it's not surprising to me that like my 12 year old self could recognize the subtext of these films again I was hypervigilant and really practiced at negotiating competing narratives in the world versus my lived experience. I truly saw myself in Beauty and the Beast. The message was so clear. Get someone to love you, and that love will set you free. Self-love alone won't do it. And it was further enunciated by Aladdin, as AJ and I have just talked about. It's taken a lot of therapy to undo that message. It honestly takes daily practice, and the effects of not loving myself has had pretty significant world implications in the course of my life. From my job, to the people that I've dated, to the friends that I've made. Um, mainly to the way that I've, I look at myself in the mirror. So many uh, people have been affected by this set of Disney films. But again, a lot of the examination is focused solely on their effects on women, non-binary people, or trans people. The stories we tell children are felt regardless of gender. Boys get messages too, and true equality requires equal scrutiny and protection. So that's why I'm making the season of the podcast, to uncover these very deep and overlooked stories. I think these messages run deep because people don't interrogate masculinity to the degree that they do femininity. Patriarchy prevents examination, and while we know and acknowledge that it's damaging to women and non-binary people, We must also see and understand how it damages men and boys, because it does. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Stories We Tell, a podcast about the way we read movies. Next episode, we're going to keep going on this journey and dive into the stories we tell boys about boys as a concept. So, Goonies, Stand By Me, E.T., Monster Squad, The Outsider, Sandlot, 
All of these stories follow, quote, boys and tell them something about the fraternity of innocence before love is introduced. What boys are encouraged to do and not do within the realm of sci-fi. You can find the stories we tell wherever you listen to podcasts. Like, follow, subscribe to make sure you're notified when the next episode drops. And until then, this is Casey Bakamini asking you to please watch carefully. Thank you.